Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Professor Fernanda Lecce from the University of Texas at Austin comes in and chats about how to communicate in academia so that you can maximize your impact. She shares some really good tips and, and advice and shares a couple lessons learned through struggles she experienced, and we hope you gain something from it. I know I learned a lot from it. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Profess Error. We are joined today by a special guest, Professor Fernanda Lecce. She joins us today from the University of Texas at Austin. And we're talking about a pretty, I hope, intriguing topic, one I know I'm interested to learn about, um, communication for positive impact and, and uh, enabling your success in academia. So, uh, Professor Lecce, Professor Franz, how are you both doing today? Good. Good. Please call me Fernanda. Come on, yeah. Steve. <laughs> I I uh I hope the semesters are wrapping up nicely for you both. I feel like there's this final mountain of work that is just looming that I feel like two weeks from now my whole world will feel very different. I don't know if you both are feeling any of this. Yeah. It's always a sprint. It feels like you're you're running through the woods really quickly and then all of a sudden you find yourself out in the middle of a field and yeah. all of a sudden it's it's over and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to survive the next three weeks, <laughs> one day at a time. So, Fernando, we are going to be talking about communication for impact. And I think this is something that's a super important topic just because of the nature of our field. We're dealing with a lot of really smart people, but also people who have very strong opinions and about topics that matter a whole lot. Before we dive into that, maybe for our listeners who are you know, grad students, junior faculty, tell us a little about what do you do? What do you study? What is kind of your area of expertise? And that may help to contextualize some of the background that you provide uh, during the podcast. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, my home area at the University of Texas is construction engineering and project management. And, and this is a group within the civil architectural and environmental engineering department. So I do a lot of research that's at the interface of engineering and computing. I teach building information modeling, and I got into this world of computing when I was in grad school at, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, so, so I, and slowly through, through my years at UT, I've been um, slowly getting into more um, sustainability type research and more and more cross-disciplinary type research. I still do much, much, of the, much of the same skills that I use in BIM in terms of information modeling. Now I'm just applying it to larger scale, like uh, um, looking at the impact of climate change and population growth and, and urban infrastructure systems. So I, I th that's the cool thing about this profession is that it allows that freedom to explore new things. And, and when you become curious to learn something new and, and go in a different direction, we have that freedom to, to do so. So I, I, I just constantly I'm just curious the whole time and and I think that curiosity is uh, what brought me to this profession and and learning new things is just what I like to do yeah well and I mean you know the other beauty of the the career path we've chosen is you do get to expand your breadth you, you talked about you're doing a similar thing but bigger and that's part of the fun if you get to build a team and each person can lead you know one element of that so you as kind of the overseer really can do so much more than you ever could have as a PhD student and um, at least for me, I find that to be both the most fun part, but also sometimes the most challenging because now you've got a whole bunch of kind of grad students who are effectively project managers of their own, you know, efforts uh, working with you and, and can be a challenge. So maybe we start our chat there. For new folks that are starting up as a faculty member, um, oftentimes, you know, the people who get uh, uh, selected as faculty members were great PhD students, did outstanding research but maybe have not mentored people sort of under them to teach others to be great researchers and great producers. Um, maybe in general, do you have any kind of experiences from your, your uh, career path where you'd say, um, here were strategies or things you learned that didn't work well or general approaches you take to communicating with your grad students to teach them to be as good or better than you were as a researcher? I think first off is is believing in your students and trusting the people that you work with, because as you progress in your career, you're, you're going to be doing more and more um, and you can't micromanage um, everyone and, and everything. Right. And you really have to trust the people around you. Um, so so I try to provide and and I tend to be a person that I have the strategic vision. I know where I want to get to, but 
I want to allow each individual student to find a path to get to that vision. Um, and, and so they develop those leadership skills and they develop that independent thinking skill to ultimately get to where, where, um, I would like to, to get to in, in that project or, or that, where, whatever that, that endeavor is. Right. But I, I do think it's important for, to, to provide that, um, freedom of thought and, and that leadership training of, 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 of having the student be independent. I think the, the students that work well with me are those that, that don't need a lot of handholding because I, I tend to provide like, this is the vision and this is where I, I want to get. And they have to sort of find their, their way. And I, and I provide guidance and feedback along the way. And I think I learned that also, um, early on in my career, because as you transition from, from a PhD student to, to a, a junior faculty member, you have to shift that mindset because you, as a PhD student, you're focused your your whole time in that project and your PhD work, and you're doing that one thing very much in in, in depth. And um, as a faculty member, now you have you have ten things right to 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 manage. And um, how do you transition from that level of detail that you were you knew every single detail of the work to you have a vision of where we want to get to and you can guide others to, 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 um, um, achieve that vision. So, so I think that, um, that transition is rough. Um, and I think I learned also slowly throughout time because it's hard to let go, right? It's hard to, to, we, in, in a lot of ways, we became researchers and we became professors because we enjoy doing, doing research. We enjoy that part. And, and as you progress in your career, you, you see that you, start doing less and less of the actual work, the actual research, hands-on work. Um, and it's hard to let go, especially at the beginning. Um, but you learn the hard way because you, you only have 24 hours in a day. Um, and, and you try to do everything and you just can't. I, 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 uh, I remember my very first year at UT, um, I was working like insane hours. It was something like 16 hours a day because I had to know every single detail of everything that was going on with all, all my PhD students were doing. Um, and, and I had a car accident. That's what, what my wake up call was. It was in the middle of the afternoon. I was just exhausted, um, sleep deprived and, um, and no one was hurt, but that was just a wake up call. I, I realized that this is a long-term career. This is just not sustainable to ha- have this life and I have to change something. Right. And, um, and that's when I, when I decided to, okay, first off, I'm going to, I'm going to have more, more decent hours. I'm going to make sure that I, that I have, that I can rest, that I do other things, um, other than, than, than work. And, and I started, I joined a rowing club at at that, this period of time. So I could force myself since it was a, uh, an, uh, eight, eight boat. It was an eight. So I actually had to show up to practice. Otherwise they would be missing a rower. Um, so it was a good way to force myself to, to show up to practice. And I was in a boat, so I couldn't have a computer or any other technology with me. So it was a really great way to disconnect. Uh, but, but that also forced me to be more effective in the hours that I was actually in the office. And, one of the things that you have to learn how to do is to delegate more and, and to trust the people that, that you work with um, and to micromanage less and less. So, so I, with time, I, I, I used to be, I used to micromanage a lot more than I do today. So I would think to, to do that though, you have to be very efficient with how you're communicating with students because you can't, you're not watching over their shoulder, as you say. So you have to give them the information that they need in the time that you have to ensure that they have mm-hmm. enough to go on to actually deliver sort of what you're expecting. So how did you yeah. get to that point where you were able to have an effective meeting with them, like whatever it is, 30 minutes or an hour, and trust that they could go away and do something and bring something back to you that would be exactly what you expected? Well, it's trial and error, right? And I think it takes a, a little while to, to for them to get used to that working style. And uh, there's some feedback that needs to happen. But I, I think that trying to have an effective, if they know that they have a one hour with me um, every week, they they can have my undivided attention for that one hour. They try to make it as effective as possible. And we try to make all the decisions that we need in that one hour uh, because they know they can we can, we can effectively end a meeting with action items. And I try to do that. They, some students, and they all have sort of different working styles. I try not not to be very prescriptive of how I work with students, but some of my PhD students, they'll send me an agenda the day before. Um, And this is what I want to talk about. 
Um, some of them will just show up with an agenda and they share their screen now that we're in, in uh, Zoom all day and they'll uh, share their screen and, and show me what their agenda is, what they want to talk about. Others just start talking, but they all have a plan of what they want to cover with me. And I think that's important is show up with a plan. Right. And, and this is what I need. And being very clear of this is what I where I need your feedback on. Um, and we always start when we also have weekly group meetings that we have one of one of them, including undergrads that work in my group. And um, they all um, uh, rotate being a featured speaker. And at the very beginning, they say, this is where I need feedback because they start learning that that's important to actually communicate where you need help. Right. I can't read people's minds. So I can't I can't. Um, know like what you're struggling with, right? So if you tell me what you're struggling with, then I'm able to, to help you better. So they sort of learn that and they uh, say what they want to talk about and they tell me, I need your help here. Um, and, and if they need a decision from me, they also just say it and, and we, we resolve it. Sometimes I, I'll already write email, whatever they need, if they need a, uh, an intro or for me to sign paper or whatever it is, let's get it done in that period of time. Um, I feel like that's such a good skill set for your students to develop, not just for for you because it guides you, but it also sort of forces them to look at critically look at what they've developed and say, I know this is weaker than it should be here or whatever. And this is where I need your input. So I, I think that's a really good skill. I know one of the challenges I hit early, especially early on, and I was not great at handling this um, when this is sort of just my philosophy. When you get students out of an undergrad or master's program, especially if it's course-based master's, not a lot of research, they're very good, I believe, at addressing convergent thinking problems. Because in undergrad, we give you a algebraic type problem and you're supposed to solve for x equals six or whatever the thing may be. But then in grad school, you know, the problems are very different. It's much more poorly structured problems, often with divergent thinking, often with answers that I don't know exactly what the right answer is. And if I knew the method I wanted you to employ, I wouldn't need the student. I could just do this. So it's a different kind of thinking. The idea of not micromanaging them, I think, is an outstanding one. I think early on, I had a little bit of a struggle with this because you'd get these great students who are just stars at sort of the undergrad mentality and their agenda, which you just mentioned, they would come to you in the meetings with the agenda. The agenda would be basically asking me to address the questions they should have addressed. So what should I do here? No, no, you're supposed to go do some homework. What are your options here? And so there's this challenge, and this is the struggle I had a little bit early on of how do I give them feedback that will advance what they're doing, but not just do the thing for them? Because at the end of the day, you both know what the publisher parish expectations are like in academia. You can do it faster than the student can, and especially up front early on. Like, no question, you can do the work faster. So there's this push-pull of do I just tell them, like, just do this strategy. A survey methodology makes sense for this. You should look at doing a case study. I'll introduce you to someone. Like, how much do you give them for the for the strategy versus how much do you let them kind of struggle a little bit in, in learning how to how to swim in the in sort of the ocean? And at least for me, that was a challenge. So I don't know if either of you have strategies for getting over that hump of thinking like an undergrad to then thinking like kind of that autonomous project manager that can just drive their their project. I think that's a constant learning process, right? Because ultimately we're mentors. Yeah. And um, and I think we've got to let them struggle a, a bit and to find their own paths, right? And uh, when they're when you see that they're about to drown or go in a in a completely off uh, on a tangent, that's when you when when you pull them back, right? And and you bring them back. But I think that some some struggling um, and and some wandering, you know, is is healthy at the beginning. And and I think that it's it's our it's. As a mentor, I think we, we're we're trying to uh, keep them within some bounds of of uh, tangents. We don't want them to go off on on too many rabbit holes, um, but but also keeping always keeping that strategic vision in mind because we we know what what the uh, milestones for a PhD are. We sort of know what the timelines are, so we want to make sure that they're hitting those. And I I try to have a plan with them, like at the be beginning of the semester. What are your goals for for the semester? And we try to develop a plan early on. And and like I said, I I try to be proactive. Like instead of instead of waiting for them to to write a paper and and I can get a paper um, a fully fully a complete paper a first draft uh, and then it's it's just very difficult to digest sometimes, um, it's better to just proactively work with them and say, let's think about an outline first. Why don't you start with with um, 
section A um, and, and then section B, and I can give you feedback along the way. And, and that way I feel like I can help them build those skills better if we piece by piece start building the work together um, instead of waiting for them to do too much and then getting, sometimes it's, it's too much sunk costs at that point, right? Um, if, if you let them go far too much. So I think that those frequent conversations and frequent feedback is important too, to make sure that they don't go off too, too far into a direction that's, that's not, um, you know, that's not what, what aligns with what the goals of the project or that research are. I definitely struggled with that initially. I, I would let students, the challenge I had is I would meet with students that they'd say something like, well, professor, I need, I need a little more time with this. I need, I'm still working on it a little bit. I'm not confident with it. I just need more. And, and it's all of these very well-intentioned excuses by the way. They were working. I'm not, I'm not doubting the work ethic, but it was, they were unconfident in the quality of their work. And I'm now getting better at not being mean-spirited, but being transparent, which was the term you used earlier, Fernanda, of, of just saying, Look, I, I respect that you want it to be good, but if you take another two months and you think it's perfect, it still won't be. So let's fail faster. Yeah, you know, just it, just give me the not good version now. We both know it's not good. It's okay, um, and just kind of go from there. And we'll we'll just iterate quicker, which I think is. And if I could have given my five years ago self advice, that would have been something I probably would have said: is fail faster. Yeah, and and that's something that we have to be comfortable with in this profession is failing. Um, because a lot of people just see, like, if they look at, at all of our CVs, Mm -hmm. all they see are the wins, right? Mm -hmm. When in reality, and I like to share this with my students, especially my, my PhD students, they submit their very first journal paper. And if they get a rejection or they get really harsh reviews, they, they get, you know, they don't, they believe, they almost internalize that and they, they, they think it's, it's them, right? They are not, and that's not true. And I, and I, I keep this, this word document of all of my rejections um and and i open it to them and i look this is like this is all the rejections and i think we get a lot of rejections in this career and and you just have to learn how how to um take in uh that feedback uh sometimes you need to walk away and and spend a couple of days away from that and come back and read it and objectively try to address it and move on right and um and and get up from it and and uh, in, in portuguese we have an ex- expression like grow thick skin like you you sort of just have to ge- um uh, not take not internalize a lot of that feedback none of it is personal there's so many reasons why why some people but some reviewers are are quite nasty and when they shouldn't be, right? And I and I read a lot of reviews because of my role in automation and construction. And uh, sometimes I delete lines because uh, it's just not productive. Um, what what? Um, and so it's not it's not. Sometimes they might be frustrated because they themselves, those reviewers, just got a rejection, yeah. and so now they want to take it out on the next review that they that they get. So it's not personal, and that's what I try to tell my students: is just take a step back. And it's going to happen again. And, and I feel like, I feel it's important. It's like a rite of passage to, to go through that as a student. It, it, it makes you stronger. It makes the work better. Um, and it's just part of, of this career. Rejection is part of, it's part of this career. It's not, not just journal papers, but, you know, look at the grants. How many grants do we write and, and how many, how many we actually, um, are successful at? But when people look at your CV, all they see are, are the successes, right? And they don't see, how many, my, my first, I, I tell this to my students, my first NSF grant was my 13th try. Hmm. Um, and you know, you just got to keep at it yeah. and, uh, and you just got to keep going. Uh, I love the yeah, idea it's... of a document of all of the failures. I feel like, you know how they have the, isn't it called like the Razzies, the, like the awards for worst movies or something yeah. like that, or worst actors. We should have collectively as academics, some kind of pseudo award for who has like the longest CV of failures, like who, who has the, or the worst comps or whatever, all of these things and, and just celebrate it kind of tongue in cheek. But I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I've never, I've never actually compiled all of my rejections, but that's a really good idea. Well, well, it's just it's actually in a in a document that I keep uh, just so I can keep track of of the journal mm-hmm. papers that are under review because I keep track of when they were submitted, when I got the first review, when when the the revision is due, 
And if something is rejected, I just move it to a, a, a section in the document that's of the rejects, just so I can keep track of everything. So it's got the accepted, it's got the rejected, and it's got in, the in review. And I can keep, keep, so, so instead of like right now, I have four PhD students. They're all in the same phase. They're all going through the, their proposal all this spring. So it's a lot for me to just keep track of. So having, having these in one place is makes life so much easier. So I know, you know, when their research question two paper was submitted and, uh, uh, should we be, be asking the editor, you know, why is this taking so long? It's been six months. Where's, <laughs> where are the reviews? Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's easier if it's all in one place. And I, I never delete those rejects because I think they're part of uh, the process too. Yeah. So then how do you provide that same kind of, uh, spirit of failure is positive when you get something from your students at those meetings that you have and it's nowhere near and you talked about you set guardrails when they go way outside of the guardrails and do something that is either you know the breadth of they're proposing to do in a conference paper what could be a nobel prize or you know these kinds of things that new students will do well intentioned but they'll they'll have these just massive questions that can't be answered or something like that how do you provide kind of your, this is fundamentally flawed feedback with still a positive um, emotion to it, so you don't just crush them. I, I learned a technique with my rowing coach, which is a sandwich approach. Um, and I, I feel like you can always find something positive to say in, in anybody's work, right? And um, I, I use a sandwich approach, and it basically consists of I know the, the real feedback that I want to give, uh, but I sandwich that real feedback, which sometimes can be tough to hear, in in between two positive comments. Um, so so that way the student really sees, or anyone, right? I, I've I've used the same approach not just with students, but with uh, a lot of different interactions. But um, they really see that you're you're looking at the entire picture, and uh, you're you're not just being mean. You're really trying to to help them, right? And you're seeing the positives and you're seeing the opportunities for improvement and you're trying to guide them and how they can. And I think it's important to also say, okay, this is the problem, but this is how you can potentially overcome this or, or do this in a different way. Because I think the how is important to, to, to explain, you know, why that's, explain the why, why, why that's an issue and the how can you overcome that hurdle and and just be transparent. I also learned the hard way, you know, my first uh, year as, a, as, as I, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings and I didn't want to give this harsh feedback. And, and then it just snowballed, yeah. right? Uh, to a point that, um, and, and I, I had to fire a student and, and that was a horrible experience. You know, you, you never want to do that. It just, but it snowballed to a point because I, I didn't give um, the, the, the harsh criticism that I, that I should have, right. And, uh, early on, and, and I try not to do that. Um, um, and I try to now just be transparent and to, to, to provide that criticism early on. So the students can fix the problem early on and, and, and carry on and, and just focus on the work. It's not every single student can, can improve, right. So it's a matter of, of you as a mentor trying to get them there. Um, right. So so everybody that that is motivated to to be in grad school, they're they're motivated, they're smart so they can do it. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of us helping them um, get there. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, you know, editing student work. I mean, I've, I've made the mistake of going in and being too thorough in some of the edits, right, where you just go in and sort of fix everything. So you say, oh, my God, what is this? And you go in and edit. You move things around. You, you edit it. And the whole thing, your track changes. The whole thing's red. Um, now I've kind of moved away from that and started just doing maybe fixing a couple sentences, like the topic sentence of the, of the paragraph, and then writing a note off to the side that said, explains why I changed this. So I'm trying to explain my rationale for why this sentence or this paragraph or this table or whatever it is doesn't work and kind of what I would do to change it so that they at least sort of learn the thought process maybe and then it gives them another shot to go and, and maybe clean it up a little bit. And, and I also learned that early on because if you do all the edits, um, I realized that some students just accept those right. track changes and they, they don't really <laughs> learn how to do it. So I think sometimes you, they do have to struggle. And if you provide some guidance of why that, that doesn't make any sense, right? And, and why they have to rewrite it. Um, I think it helps more. Um, and, and, um, I, I think that that's, that's a much more proactive approach of, of, uh, mentoring and getting them there than, than, 
than editing for them. It's just hard to get to that point because of the, the tenure track pressure of, okay, I can go iteration, iteration, iteration. I can iterate on this thing 10 times with a student and it's going to take three months or four months, or I can just fix it myself in two weeks and at least get it in the review process. So I think the, the tenure process is hard because it almost disincentivizes that type of you know, feedback, which is much more beneficial to the student and probably much more beneficial to you in the long run. I mean, I'd rather teach that student how to write so that, you know, by the time they're almost graduating, you know, they're, they're much more productive. I mean, I can't be writing their <laughs> dissertation for them. Yeah. So, you know, at some point they have to learn how to write. But you know what, what um, I started to do as, as my group started to, to get a little bit larger is um, I, I like to create a group culture in mm-hmm. which they help each other and in which um, there's not a feeling of competition. Yeah. So they're all there to help each other. So our group meetings are very much uh, positive in tone of providing um, help. And, and people say, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I need help. Um, and, and that trickles down to even paper writing. So oftentimes my students will, another one of the PhD students or the master, uh, grad students, they will have had uh, reviewed each other's papers before I see yeah. um, the version. So it helps that um, for, for them to know that I'm not the only person that can help them, mm-hmm. that that's the reason why you're in a group, that the reason why we're a group is because we need to be helping each other. And and I've, I started to see more collaboration between them too, like the, oh, so-and-so, can, can we add... Can we add um, so and so to this paper because they really helped me in this part of the work? And I was like, "That's great! You know, collaboration is great." So if y'all are collaborating, um, give credit where, where credit is due. Um, and so I've I've been seeing that happening more in the last few years as as I've become more vocal about the importance of seeking each other's help um, and creating that culture too in the group. I think that's a really good idea. We, we tried something, I'm saying this in the spirit of we're all on Zoom at the moment, and we've been on Zoom for what, the last year and change, and, and hopefully we're not forever, but we still probably will be for a while. One of the things we've done that's been kind of fun for that spirit of collaboration, but also transparency, which is one of the topics we talked about earlier, we would do uh, elevator pitches, right? So I'm sure if you have your students presenting somewhere, a poster or whatever, you probably walk through those strategies with them. I think that is a challenge for a lot of new students. And so one of the things that we've done, and I'm saying this either for you if you're interested or or others who may be listening, we've started to do an activity in Zoom where we'll have someone present their elevator pitch. And then essentially, once they're done, they mute essentially their their video. We have them mute their audio. I know you all can still hear me at the moment. Um, But, you know, it'd be like I muted. And we have the others in the room talk about what they just heard. And you can't see me kind of shaking my head like, that's not what I said. You didn't get it right. This isn't it. You know, and there's something really interesting that I found in terms of providing that blunt feedback of, look, if if six people on the call heard you say this and you're telling me you didn't say this, I'm sorry, but that's not what anyone is hearing. And it's yeah. it's really, um, I found this, I've done this for myself too when I'm trying to present something with other uh, colleagues. It's been actually a really interesting sort of little human trick that we all know you're there. I, that I know you know I'm there, but when I can't participate visually or you know over the audio, it's a really interesting way of getting that feedback, but also giving ownership to the others on the team where all of your feedback will be heard now. And I all I want all of you to weigh in. What did you hear her say? Did she talk about this? Why did they do it that way? What? And it's been kind of an interesting um, shift in the environment we're in to get some of that culture going. That's a cool technique. It's been fun. I like it. It works in small yeah. groups. I think that's it works in small. Yeah, you'd, yeah. I mean, if I don't know how big the labs are, so at a certain point, there's there's practical limitations. Cool. So why don't we shift a little bit? We've talked about working with students, which I think um, we took a, a a large chunk of our time to discuss, which is great because I think that's a major challenge for new faculty. Let's talk about when there's not the power differential, though. When we're working with colleagues, right? What are some of the strategies or or failures that that you experienced, Fernanda, when you were working with? new colleagues when you were starting up, or maybe you still hit some of these challenges. Like, how do you communicate an idea to someone else who um, you're not his or her advisor? So they don't automatically just take what you say as, well, Dr. Lachey said this, I better do that. You know, how, do, how do you present then to someone who doesn't have that uh, you know, incentive? Or it goes the other way, right? where you're the junior faculty maybe. and they're the senior faculty, right? So the power differential is actually flipped. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But we, we ultimately want, um, there's an objective to that interaction, right? Whatever that objective is. And you have to know, you know, what's the, what's the final outcome that you envision for that interaction? And, and I think that it's important to listen to people to figure out what's, what they would like um, to see happen. And I, I like to listen first, like in a lot of interactions, when I'm, when I'm in a meeting, and we have to uh, resolve something or come up with a decision, I like to listen to other people to understand what different perspectives are, and to, to understand what they're thinking, where they're coming from. And at, at the end, I, I, I provide, you know, my, my input. Um, and, and I feel like that, uh, and listening, and if I'm in that decision making role of, let's say if I'm, I'm chairing a committee or something, um, I, I feel like I'm more of a moderator. Um, and I want to make sure every single person is heard and the different perspectives are heard before we, before I suggest a, a path forward. Um, but I think that listening is so important in that, in that situation, right? And a lot of our colleagues, you know, they like to talk okay. and they, and and oftentimes you just let them let them talk right and you listen um and that that listening you know you you really get what people what people are interested in what they really want and and um and and i think then you can digest you know what's better in terms of a path forward if you have that understanding better and and i one thing that i learned also um as you know, as I've progressed and worked more and more in larger uh, groups of, of faculty is you don't have to make a decision right there. So sometimes you're in a meeting and, and uh, you might feel pressured by a senior faculty member to make a decision or to make a call. You don't have to make a call. That's the one thing I learned about this profession that we're in. It's, it's not life or death. Nothing is, has to be, no decisions have to be made this instant. No one is going to die because you didn't make that decision um, at that instant. Um, and sometimes saying, okay, let me think about that a little bit. And, and oftentimes removing yourself from that situation and thinking about that, that uh, offline, if you want to move forward with that, is, is better because that way you're, you're, you're removed from, from um, any, any dynamics that, that you may be feeling um, or pressure that you may be feeling in that room. And, and you can think with a clearer mind or get input from other people that you trust. Um, early on in my career, I also didn't feel comfortable saying no to people. Like to senior colleagues, you would get lots of invitations or, um, and, and, you know, sometimes you, you just, you, you know, like, it, the nice thing about this profession is you get to choose who you, you collaborate with. And sometimes you feel sort of pressured to collaborate with certain people. And, um, and I, I ended up using my, my senior mentors, um, oftentimes to say no. Right. And, and I still do. Sometimes I, I, I say, well, my, my chair really doesn't want me to do anything, uh, you know, anything outside the university anymore. And once I, I, I actually, um, uh, went to my, my, um, my chair's office when this was my, my, I was in my first or second year as a faculty member. And I really didn't want to say no to this one very senior professor that was inviting me for what I knew was going to be a huge time sink. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I went to her office and I said, can you, I'm going to send you this email. Can you just say no? Um, just, just reply, say, say, I can't do it. And she just laughed and she's like, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, and, um, and she's, she's uh, our dean now. And I, and I feel like I still have that relationship with her that I can count on her to, to help me when I, when I'm, I'm in those situations that I need, I need, um, I need help to get out of. Right. And, and I think it's okay. I think we have to evaluate that. And, um, and sometimes you need help. You can't, um, you can't, you can't, um, uh, and the way to get out of it, you know, going back to the original question here is oftentimes not committing at that moment, right? And taking that step back and saying, I need to think about this. And, and that's when you can, uh, call on your, your, your colleagues and friends and mentors to see if you can collect more information or, or can get, you know, somebody else's help to get you out of that. <laughs> <laughs> that potential time sink. Got to do it gracefully. I mean, that, that's where, especially when you're a junior faculty, I've always felt like it's it's very difficult to. We've talked about saying no a couple times in the podcast and, and being able to, but it's very difficult when you know you're you're trying to. You want to be seen as a collaborator. You want to be seen as a team player in the department. You know, you you want to be someone that can be counted on and depended on, um, but you also know that you're already overloaded with the stuff that you have and 
you know, doing that gracefully, letting them down gracefully. I think that's a great idea to, and I, I admit I've done that too, where I've gone to the department head and say, um, you know, I'm going to use you as a, a scapegoat here. And <laughs> that, you know, the department head says that I shouldn't be doing this because uh, I need to be focused on tenure track stuff. So sorry. Um, but yeah. I, I think that's a good graceful way of sort of getting out of a few things if, if you really legitimately don't have the time to do it. And, and granted, I don't, I'm not great at it. I'm still learning, um, you know, how to, how to say no. And I think the pandemic has helped because the pan, in the pandemic, we're all stretched extra thin. Um, and uh, my, my daughter, you know, her daycare hours are reduced because of the pandemic. So I have even less um, hours of, of work that I have to cram in um, and in those hours that she's out at, at daycare. And um, I've, I've learned, I've gotten better in the last year, but I'm it's still a learning process. The thing about our career is that we never know what's going to land. It's like writing all these grants, you never know which one is going to be successful. So if you say no to everything, then you might close some potential doors, right? And and sometimes you're just excited about something. It might be a time sink, but you're passionate mm-hmm. about it. So go for it, right? That's the the cool thing about this profession too, is you can you can make that, you have that liberty of deciding where where you want to put in your time strategically. Uh, but we all have different passions and uh, we should, you know, go for it if we're really p- passionate about it. Yeah. Cool. So maybe on, on, I don't know if this relates to the sort of colleague level or even others, but one of the things you talked about um, a few minutes ago was the power of listening. And people will volunteer some information if you allow yourself to be open to it and you'll hear it. Uh, I think that makes immediate sense in terms of giving you actually power so that when you voice your opinion, you kind of know, the others have shown their hands, so to speak, of you know where they stand on a topic. However, I suspect a lot of the times their feedback or their their uh, aims are in, in opposition to one another. Someone says we should do A, someone says we do B, and there's not an over, overlap between A and B. How, I mean, what has been your approach to handling those situations? You talked about the sandwich approach for, you know, harsh feedback for, for students. But what do you do when it's it's an A or B and there's not an in-between and someone's going to be unhappy in this situation? Like, do you have strategies for handling that kind of conflict? Especially if, like Brian said, we're talking either senior colleague or someone at a university level, maybe someone in industry who could fund your work, but someone who matters that's not going to like what you're about to say. That's and I've dealt with that situation and not not uh, too long ago, quite uh, recently. Um, and one thing that I learned is that you can't make everybody happy. Um, and when you're dealing with very opinionated uh, colleagues, um, people that are not going to agree, um, but a decision has to be made. And sometimes it's going to be made by majority vote. Yeah. And, and, um, if two people, but, but what I, what I prefer to do, and I have colleagues that, you know, they are very sneaky. You have a committee and, and you're supposed to discuss all of the, those, those items within a committee. Um, and some people try to do backdoor deals so they can get their way. And by the time you arrive at the committee meeting, the decision has already made or they already got their, whatever it is that they want, they want. Um, and so my approach dealing with, first off, I, I sort of knew the, this MO of, of this colleague, right? And my approach was after consulting with, senior administrators of, of, of how to deal with this, we developed the, the following approach with has, has worked well of, of, uh, with in this specific instance is, um, I do not engage in backdoor deals. So whenever this colleague tried to use his MO approach, um, I, I reply and I say, no problem, I'll add this to our agenda and we'll talk about it um, with the entire group um, on Friday in our, next, in our next meeting. And so I've done this so many times already that he just does not, um, uh, he knows it's not going to work, right? That trying to, to engage in those backdoor deals. So I try to be transparent and I try not to engage in this kind of, of, of uh, uh, pettiness and, and, and backdoor dealing. I, I prefer things to be transparent. And, um, and even though he doesn't agree um, on, on the decision, it is what it is, right? It's got to be done by, by, by majority vote. He can have his 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 say, and he can say what, what he has the floor. Others have the floor too, and then we have to make a decision. Um, and oftentimes, this person that was very successful getting backdoor deals in his favor 
now is just not getting favorable deals anymore now that it's all transparent and everybody can hear um, some absurdities <laughs> that this person has been requesting. Um, yeah, so it's it almost seems like it's challenging at times when I mean th- that situation I think is a good example of really what you, what you want to avoid. I think that was clearly the right decision not to engage in those. Sometimes the challenge though too is it's not a right answer versus a wrong answer. It's two not great answers, you know, or two okay answers or whatever. But but it's not like an easy yes to either way. And so I know one of the strategies I've done. I, I had to, um, it was via email, but I had a, a, an issue come up with someone. And I had to basically say, look, here, here's my response to your, your question. I know this isn't the response you want. I'm sorry. I'm the bearer of bad news. And basically pre-scripted, I know this is how you feel. If you're going to email me back and saying I'm angry, I've, we've already addressed. I know that. <laughs> you know why I've said this. And I don't know that it actually makes them happier or not, but it does seem to, it's like the fast forward button a little bit on getting past some of the emotional, I'm hurt you didn't pick the option I wanted. Yes, I know, but we had to go with something. And so it almost seems like sometimes just addressing it actually can can sometimes help too. And maybe this is context dependent, um, but I, I've at least found that to be sometimes a helpful strategy. I agree. I, I think that listening, showing that you heard them yeah. and, and that you understand their frustration is the first thing. And, and I get those a lot mm-hmm. from, from automation and construction. Like somebody gets a rejection of a paper, they write an email to me asking to reconsider the decision. I can't tell you at least once a week I get I get an email like that of somebody frustrated um and and I have also have a standard reply that I copy and paste um so uh if y'all are listening basically does not work <laughs> cuz I'll use the standard text uh, but the first thing is I'm acknowledging their frustration you know but but we do have to review, respect the review process it's not like I can if if two reviewers said reject I'm 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 going to go with those expert opinions, right? I'm not going to override what what they uh, what they said, um, and so it's it's that's the lesson. There is you can't you're not gonna uh, you're not gonna be liked by everyone all the time, right? And you're gonna ma- make some decisions in life that are gonna make some people upset, but it's the right thing to do, and sometimes we've got to do it um, and and we've got to do it for the greater good to move forward or or for for the transparency of that process or to respect the, uh, the process that that we're, we're taking yeah so speaking of moving forward you mentioned earlier on one of the initiatives you are uh, enrolled in is in tar- targeting some of the grand challenges um, that are out there now I don't I didn't actually get all the background if this is grand challenges by ASCE or NSF or UT specific, um, but in general, when I think grand challenges, I think a pretty ambitious, visionary statement that's a 5, 10, 20 year kind of vision. Um, and one of the things that I think can be a challenge is those visions are undoubtedly helpful, but the, the in- incremental steps that lead to those major visions are sometimes less clear. Um, how have you approached kind of situations where you say, I've got a really ambitious vision and you need to do something to make progress towards a 30-year vision? Like what have been some of your strategies for um, enacting that kind of change? Well, you can't do it by yourself. That's the first thing, right? So so the the, the Grand Challenge initiative that I'm part of is, is a, a University of Texas um, initiative called um, Planet Texas 2050. And um, a few years ago, our uh, the president's office launched a call for proposals for moonshot initiatives. Mm-hmm. And so they got over 200 proposals across the university and the office of the vice president of research identified clusters of ideas. And one of these clusters turned out to be uh, this idea around uh, the impact of climate change and population growth in our cities and, and infrastructure systems. And so these different people from across the university had written proposals that sort of fit in that cluster. They didn't know each other and they were paired um, to what then became Planet Texas 2050. And 2050 is is basically the year that the population will double in the state of Texas compared to 2018, which is when, when this initiative was launched. And Planet Texas is because we, we think that what's happening in Texas in terms of extreme events and a vulnerable impacts to, to vulnerable com- communities is a really great testbed was what's happening in a lot of cities around the globe. So that's where that title comes from. Um, and so 
um, I think that working in this big interdisciplinary group for me has allowed me to learn to um, listen to, to, to understand what other people's assumptions are that are from a very different discipline than I am and to learn um, how to communicate in, in, in a way uh, that people that don't have the same assumptions or the same training that I do, the same background knowledge or the same mental models, um, we have to communicate in a way that, that we can meet them in the middle, right? Um, and, and it's the same way for them. It's, it's almost like we spent maybe two years trying to understand how we all communicate and we all think, and now we can be, be more effective in how we collaborate and work together. But it took a while to get to that point in which we understood each other. Um, and this is the the, the uh, 10 of us that sit in the leadership committee of this. Um, and this is an eight-year program. So we're going to exist for eight years, and then we're going to sunset. So the whole idea is we, we have the startup funds that comes from the university to do this research, but we're expected to bring, to, to always be writing grants and writing proposals to bring in more funds. Uh, but since we're working together, now we're we're building these teams and we're able to collaborate. I've learned new methods, um, new approaches of doing research that I had no idea of because I'm working with people that are from a very different uh, field um, than I am. So I think meeting people in the middle and learning um, how to communicate your mental models, your assumptions, so that we can actually be productive and do something together is a struggle. And, I'm, and, you know, I'm still learning, but I think we've, it took us a couple of years um, to actually get to, to where we are now. That's such a good skill though. To, I mean, I, f- I feel like that's, I don't know, I don't know percentage, but a huge part of success is sort of having that almost mental agility to say, what is the, what is the recipient of this information I'm about to say? Like, what's their level of understanding and how do I tailor my message to something they are, are capable of receiving and making meaning out of? But I think that's super tough because it seems like in a lot of the academic circles, especially our close circles, we use a lot of either jargon or we make assumptions that we all understand this phenomenon, which maybe we don't, first of all. It's mm-hmm. certainly when we look outside of our domain. Um, so I, I still struggle with that too, but I feel like that's such an important skill set for, for communicating for impact as we're discussing today. And one one thing that I like to do, like when I'm in these big brainstorming meetings, if we're talking about a propo- developing a proposal or working on on something with a big collaborative team, um, I again use my listening technique. I like to listen to 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 what other people are thinking, and then I summarize because I think by summarize this is what I heard. Um, this is what I heard um, you saying, and so let's move forward in this direction, and then proposing a direction. Um, because oftentimes we can all just sit here and chat, chit chat all day about whatever topic you, you throw at us, right? But if in the end we don't have an action item, um, that whole hour that we spent brainstorming is not going to be useful for anyone. So I think summarizing what was discussed um, and verbally saying it in the meeting, right? Just this is what I'm hearing um, and this is what I suggest we do moving forward based on what I'm hearing. Um, and I think that is, is something that I, I, I use a lot, uh, is the, the listening, then summarizing what I'm hearing, and then proposing a path forward. I mean, I would say academics probably appreciate that because what, what I've seen is there's a lot of inertia um, sort of with, with getting academics moving in, in a single direction. Like you say, they love talking about ideas and they'll sit there and chat all day, but how do you actually turn that into actual action like okay (laughs) great guys so what's the actual plan now what are we all going to leave here doing i feel like that is particularly challenging with academics for whatever reason and and i and i've been on committees and and that's the thing with with not having a clear you've got to have a clear lead of anything any group that you're a part of even if it's a departmental committee right you've got to have a clear lead that is accountable for whatever is happening i was on a committee um i'm not going to mention uh who was the chair uh, of of the committee doesn't matter but um you know it's at, we were just talking about uh, talking, 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 brainstorming. And in the end, there was no action item, no specific task. And the person's like, okay, everybody knows what to do. And we're all like, we do not. <laughs> we just chatted for an hour and nobody knows what to do. And then we met again another month and again, chatted, chatted, chatted with no objective. And then at the end of the meeting, okay, you all know what to do. 
And again, we're like, no, <laughs> we don't know what to do. So you've got to say, this is what we talked about. And this is what X, Y, and Z. Okay. So Brian, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, Steve, you're going to do A, B, and C. Got it. And you're going to do it by next meeting. Um, and, and if we, if we say it that we're all very uh, goal oriented, if I, if I give you a task, a very, if I, I, you'll, it, the probability, the likelihood of you actually doing it is higher if, if I actually, um, um, tr- be transparent and very clear about what has to be done. But I can't tell you how many faculty meetings I've been in that we just talk, 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 and, and there's no action, no action items. <laughs> and that goes for students. You know, that's why it's so important to do that at the end of every meeting, research project meeting. Okay. What are we going to do? Uh, what's going to happen between now and, and, and next week? Um, and in a, a committee meeting too, we've got to do the same thing in a, in a CII project meeting. We've got to yeah. say the same thing. Okay. So, so and so we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and if, and I've learned like working with CII research teams, and uh, for 11 years now that the more you provide like very clear tasks for your industry team members, they're volunteering their time, right? For, for those teams, the more they actually get done. Um, and so I like to, to provide like small doses, ta- ta- small tasks and frequent tasks and, and, um, and just be very clear about what the request is. Well, and the other thing though that you're hitting there that I think is critically important is, so half of it is what you've just said is being specific, but also, I mean, in every example you've just mentioned there, you picked a person and you had someone responsible for it. I've been in meetings too where they'll say, okay, so we need to define our research question and our method and what types of data we'll get. Okay, so we're all going to think about that and come back next time. If everyone- Nobody's going to think about it. (laughs) If everyone's responsible, no one's responsible. No one's going to do it. We're all supposed to do it. So like, it's just, you got to pick someone. Like it's, someone just has to be the lead, both for the meeting and then for the initiatives that you define in the meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you've got to have accountability. It's got to be like one specific person that has to do uh, X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's so so true. It's That goes with committees that have co-chairs. If you have co-chairs, you, there's no lead, right? And you can always say, oh, if I miss it, no problem. Somebody else will... will will pick up for me. It's like being on the rowing team. If you're missing one rower, you can't take the boat out. <laughs> I assume, I don't know rowing, Everybody but I assume has you just to go do their in circles part. if you have odd numbers on either side, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, in an eight, you can actually figure out oh, a way to, right. to make the boat move, but some, some smaller boats, you actually need all of the, okay. the rowers in there. So one other direction I'd like to talk about before we get to our fun part. So you mentioned a little bit of work that you had done with industry, right? CII, or Construction Industry Institute, for those that aren't familiar, is one of the major groups out there, at least in the civil or construction engineering realms, that will do research with academics and industry. Um, but we have different backgrounds, both highly necessarily, highly necessary, highly um, you know, valid and, and critical but we kind of speak about a similar topic in different ways. What have been some of the strategies you've seen for communicating kind of our academic ease to someone who is out in industry right now on, on a project for the other seven hours of the day that they're not in the meeting with you? Well, one thing that I learned with uh, CII uh, companies and interacting with them is they want a solution today, right, to their problem. And they're always asking, I remember the 2019 um, CII annual conference in San Diego was the last one that was face to face, um, before the pandemic. And, um, we presented a project on, on virtual reality. And, um, several people would come up to me after the conference and ask, you know, what technology should I be investing in in my company? Or should we be doing virtual reality in all of our projects? And the whole point, like I was sitting up on stage and I remember like the main message is whatever, if you're deciding on a technology, you've got to be intentional about Absolutely. the use of that technology. Otherwise, it's like another shiny object that you're going to see and run at play with it. It's going to be a one-time prototype that you're going to implement in the project. and, and not. So you've got to be intentional about why you're using that. Um, and, and they, they want a solution today and they want an easy button and that doesn't exist, right? Um, in, in, in a lot of what we do in, in industry. And I think educating them to, to just, uh, be, be more thoughtful of, of that process. And, and I think people that participate in CII research, um, industry representatives that participate in CII research, they, they gain a better, um, a better appreciation of that process, of the importance of, of taking a step back and, and seeing um, 
when something makes sense uh, to, to use or to implement, what are the questions that I should be asking if I have this new approach um, and, and I'm deciding if I want to implement it in my, in my project. And, and it's not, not always an easy button and it's not a one size fits all. Um, but I think that that's the, the, the difference is when, when I present like the same CII research we published in a, in a journal paper. But in the journal paper, we focus much more on the, the rigorous methodology of, let's say, in this case, it was the user tests for the, the uh, VR that, the test bed that we were developing. And in the CII uh, presentation, it's more the high level, you know, findings, right? We, we said, you know, we, we tested um, the, using a VR headset um, with a, for a design review use case. And we know, st- there's a, 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 we know that people that use a, a, a head-mounted display actually identify more design errors than if they're using, visualizing the same model in a desktop computer. Right. So so we, we don't have to get into the statistics and um, all the, the rigorous methodology f- that we went through to actually reach that conclusion. But what they want to know is what's the conclusion? So oh, so th- what you're telling me is that I should use VR for, for design review. That's what they want to know. Right. So um, I, I, I and I and I, I think that that's the, the difference there of, of how you communicate that that uh, result is focus on the action. It's always like what's the call to action? at the end uh, with industry and what do I have to do? What's uh, um, after I, I hear you and after your, your research, what's the call to action? Yeah, every every industry presentation that I've done, I've always started with the results. Like just <laughs> here's the three takeaway things to get them interested in it. And then if you want to talk about some methods or how you got there, right? But like it's the opposite of what you would do in a, in a paper of trying to build the story of, you know, here's the problem and here's how we approached it. And then here are the results. I mean, you're not, industry wants it reversed. They want, I think the results right up front, tell me what's important. And then you can tell me how you got there to, you know, prove that this is right or, or this is, you know, actually reflects. That, that I should believe you. Yeah. yeah right. That I should builds believe up you. the credibility yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder if, if some of that is related to a concept that we brought up earlier. You know, we talked about when we're starting up as academics, we knew it would be a good idea to build, uh, you know, thought leaders in our students and that kind of thing, but it took longer. But we have also have the pressures of publish, perish, this kind of thing. I do wonder if some of that is similar in industry in that they say, look, I also want to take three years and study a problem. I don't have the time for it. And I, and so I, I'm wondering if in part it's, it's not a matter of, the, it may not be a matter of that um, there uninterested but it's just that there is a is a you know efficiency of information of just i need this right now i'll take a good enough version that's not perfect that can't get published can't survive the automation and construction review process give me the good enough version that does a little better than my even worse version without this tool or whatever now i kind of wonder if it's just the same kind of i don't have time to think mentality or i don't have i don't have time to do it that way mentality uh, I, for for industry, I think that they are. Um, they, I think in the construction industry, they are in um, firefighting mode all the time. They're used to I want to get it done and move on. There, it's that project mentality, right? So I want to get it done, and there's so much pressure, time pressure, cost pressure to just get it done as quickly as possible. And so that's why they want those instant solutions, right? They want. You know, whatever works. And that's another reason why we, we tend to, to, to have construction tends to have this, this, uh, bad rep of people that don't adopt new technologies because it's a risk, right? So, you know, if you know something works and you can get it done quickly, you know, let's get it done. And, um, that's why it's so important to, to have, to be intentional about these decisions, right? When you're implementing new processes, new, new technologies. And oftentimes it's smart to have a separate group of people that maybe work corporate wide that, can can have that uh, can spend that time thinking strategically because yeah. you need people to think strategically. You can't. Not everybody can be in firefighting mode all the time for a company to be su- successful. You need strategic thinkers too, um, and I think that goes for 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 everyone. Like in academia too, in a research group, you need people to. You need the strategic thinkers, and you need the people to to actually be running the experiments. Right. You need you need all these different skill sets to to make things happen. Yeah. 
Well, this is great. I feel like we covered a lot of good content. We talked about working with students, working with colleagues, maybe senior colleagues, some even university level initiatives, industry initiatives. Any other thoughts of items you want to talk about before we get to our kind of fun lightning round of just other communicating topics or uh, anything else you want to chat about? Can't think of anything. All right. Let's go to the lightning round. So, Sounds like I'm going to get a prize or something. <laughs> so, Brian, do you want to leave these? It's like a game show. Shall I? Um, why don't you get it? I think I did last week's or last Okay, week's. deal. Go ahead and do these. So we talk in this podcast about celebrating failure, right? And so we've talked about a number of maybe challenging failures, whether it's with other people or project initiatives or whatever. For our listeners, can you think of something in the last week that was kind of like a micro failure? It can be work-related. It can be personal. It can be important it can be borderline stupid but just in your in your life what was like a micro failure that you had in the last week huh okay this the awkward silence uh, i'm thinking here but it usually has to do with my almost five-year-old daughter um and uh, it, it usually has to do with some interaction that she'll she'll have some sort of meltdown, and then it's it's just huge uh, stressful situation. So it usually, there's always some micro failure in when parenting is at play here. So for for anybody out there who has kids, the micro failures happen on a daily basis when when you have kids. Um, so you got to tell to think her to of, listen to this podcast about keeping keeping yourself composed, right? The the lessons you mentioned earlier. Don't don't let anyone uh, well, see you flip out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And she actually uses this, she learned in in preschool a breathing technique, and sometimes I've been doing that too. I learned it from my my almost five year old. Um, like when she gets upset, she she'll start breathing. <sighs> And I start to, sometimes I do that myself as well, um, so I can keep my cool. Good advice. I like that one. Okay, next one we've got. Complete the sentence. When I'm not working, there's nothing I would rather be doing than blank. You know, I I, I love, um, like, going on hikes um, and um, just being outdoors. I, and, and it's not just because our life has been online for, for the past year, but I think that that has always recharged me. And um, especially if I can stare at water. So I, I grew up, I'm originally from Brazil. So uh, the ocean um, and the sound of water and, and just look staring at water really, really is is relaxing for me and healing. So if I can, and Austin is, is nice because we have lots of bodies of water, rivers around town. And um, oftentimes on, on weekends, I'll, I'll go out with my family to state parks that are not too far away, about 50 minute drive. And it feels like we don't have a beach, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, but you know, it, there's some sandy areas and some coves and people go out boating. But I, we, we take a p- picnic blanket and just sit there and, and I'll happily stare at the water for an entire afternoon. And my daughter is just playing and making sandcastles. And for me, that's like the perfect afternoon. That sounds like a great that's way cool. to spend an afternoon. All right. Um, th- th- number three of four. If you had a time machine and you could go backward or forward in time to anywhere in the world, actually to anywhere in the world or outside for two hours, when and where would you go? Hmm. That's a good one. You know, I, I, I've been thinking of a specific day um, in December of 2019 lately, which was the last time I, I saw my parents in person. So my parents live in Brazil. And because of the pandemic, I haven't seen them um, since, since December 31st, uh, 2019. That was the day they flew back to, to Brazil. And we were in uh, Miami. And we had this most lovely afternoon. Um, so we, we uh, went to an art exhibit uh, in the morning um, and we, we had lunch at a Cuban restaurant and we spent the afternoon at Miami Beach just playing in the sand uh, with my daughter and, and my, uh, my niece and, and my husband. And um, I still, you know, that's my happy moment when, when I, I feel like I, I really miss them. I remember that day, um, that that specific day, and I just, if I could go back for two hours, I would probably go back to that afternoon in, in Miami Beach and and just um, see my parents like running after my daughter and just playing, and that whole day was wonderful. Miami um, in December is great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, last one we've got. 
What is your favorite part of your job or career, something professionally related, that you can't really put on your CV, that we don't have a line item for on your CV? And non-professionally related? No, no, something, something related oh, to profession. the profession, but it, by the nature okay. of it, it doesn't really belong on a CV, but it's your favorite part. Well, I, I don't know if it's my favorite part, but something that I'm actually really proud of that um, I think I don't think people realize how much work it was. And I'm, I think it, it can really impact the long term of the School of Engineering at, at UT Austin. So in, in the 2019-2020 academic year, I led a, a committee that developed our current diversity, equity and inclusion plan. Um, and, and that led to a new position of a, associate dean of DEI in the Cockrell School. And I, I, I really am proud of, of that work that we did as a committee. And, and again, using all those techniques, cause it's a three page document, but it took nine months. Um, because we had to write it with a, an entire committee with representatives from, from, uh, staff, students, faculty, uh, different perspectives. And I was leading those discussions and using the same techniques that I've been describing here, the listening, uh, making sure every single voice is heard, um, summarizing the thoughts, developing action items. And, and I think that there were meetings and I remember a colleague becoming frustrated because in one, one entire hour, we discussed one bullet. Um, and, and the colleague, I, I noticed that she got up and left. She said she had another meeting and then she texted me afterwards. She's like, I couldn't deal with it anymore. One entire hour to discuss one bullet. And, and you know, I, I don't, I don't get upset about these things, you know, and, and I, it, for me, I, I see it as, as just that's, that's time that we need to, we just need uh, to have that conversation, right? And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Um, but everybody has has to um, has to have their voice uh, heard. And 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 I'm really proud of of the outcome of of that plan. And and it's it's a it's a tiny little. I don't even know if it's in my CV to be honest. I don't think it's there. Um, but I'm really proud of, of of that. That's a great answer. Cool. Fernando Lecce, thank you so much for being here. This was a, truly a lot of fun discussion. I always have fun chatting, but I feel like these were great uh, concepts and suggestions. I will personally be taking several of these. So thank you. This was <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It's always I, I, now I, I wish we could actually go off. And this is uh, Friday afternoon when we're recording this. We could go off into a happy hour right now. Right. So yeah. Soon, hopefully. Th- Soon, yeah. Let's hope yes. uh, 2021 is, uh, and, you know, we get back into normal here soon. Well, I, I really appreciate the, the invitation and y'all having me um, here today, and, and I enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you so much. Great. And thank you all for listening. We enjoy uh, having you here as always. Hopefully you got a couple of strategies out of this discussion that will help you, and we will catch you on the next episode of Prophets Ever. Thank you.